And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had, set, had sent away the multitude, they took also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, all asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fear, fearful? How is it that ye, that ye have not no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I don't know if this is a, a, a story you're very familiar with. Maybe it's a story you're, you're, you're extremely familiar with, almost overly familiar with. Maybe it's a story, this, maybe you heard it for the very first time as, as, as Marcus read it. I think this story is so incredibly powerful. Because it, it, I think in some ways it just speaks, uh, you know, the disciples almost speak for the entirety of humanity when they ask questions like, don't you care? Don't you care? And maybe even then, for those of us who have experienced Jesus, that statement of who is this man? It's a powerful story as we find Jesus in control over the wind and the waves, over the control over a storm. It's one of these stories. I, I think I'm not going to be able to do it justice in the next few minutes. I would encourage you to even just, I mean, like it's only a few verses to sit with it this week. Let it speak to you. Read it. Ask the Spirit to speak to you and show you different things. Like, Because as I was going through this passage, there were so many different things that came to my mind. You know, whether it was on Monday or whether it was on Thursday or whether it was on Friday. Like, there were all different things. And I, I'm kind of going, which direction do I go? You know, with this, like, there's all of these really cool things going on in the story. But what I want to focus in on, really, is, is two, two main things. Who who Jesus is, who Jesus is, and where Jesus is. <laughs> Those are the two things I, I really want us to hone in on this morning. And as we kind of take this journey together, the first thing I just want to just talk about is this. I think fear is a really powerful thing, right? Maybe you've heard like fear is a good motivator, like, right? Like, fear is a really powerful thing. And it has the ability to take control of us, to grip us, to move us, to shape us in some pretty incredible ways. It can paralyze us or lead us to do or say things that we wouldn't even ordinarily do. And as I was thinking about this, it was just mulling over in my head. I mean, fear can take a lot of different shapes, right? Like I think about like the fear of missing out. Like I see that in, in my kids. I see that in myself. Right? You see it in people who, you know, queue up outside of, a, outside of a shop to get the latest iPhone. Like, you see all this, like, fear can do a great many things to us. This fear of missing out. Like, ah, I've got to get, the, I've got to get the latest piece of technology or my life won't be complete or I've got to get this or I've got to do that. Or like, you know, I, I, there's so many ways, in just silly ways, that fear can grip us. Whether it's missing out on the latest technology or perhaps it's, 
missing out on a house as you feel in a desperate crunch to buy one because your twins are going to arrive soon and your two-bedroom apartment is starting to, you know, implode into you like a black hole and you're starting to feel... <laughs> not that I would know anything about that. I'm not speaking... That's just generalities, right? No, like... Guys, to be honest, this is like one of those things as I was like thinking about this, I realized like I had been letting fear control me because that is my situation, right? We've been trying to buy a house. It's been difficult. Like I'm not going to go into that because the rest of the sermon would be talking about my experience with all of this. But there was a moment where I let fear control me in a way that was embarrassing, in a way that was, that was really, really sad. And, and, I, and to be honest, I just felt like I wanted to confess that to you guys. I wanted to share that with you guys. Because sometimes we get this idea that like, oh, the guy, you know, the minister or something like that. Now, if you know me too well, you know it's not true. But still, like, we can kind of have this idea like, oh, the minister, he's like Mr. Holy Man or something like that. You know, like, because I had a really embarrassing moment with this. Because I had this moment where I was worried we were going to lose this house. We, we had, they had agreed a price, we were going to lose the house, and they started asking questions that I didn't want to give the right answer to. And in a moment of desperation, without thinking about it, I lied. I lied to the, to the estate agent. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I felt like the biggest idiot in the whole world. I felt like the biggest hypocrite, the biggest failure. Like here I stand up on a Sunday morning talking about following the way of Jesus, and when the rubber hit the road, and I was really concerned about losing something that I wanted, I lied. And so then I got the fun, embarrassing job of talking to the estate agent and being like, well, yeah, you know the pastor down the street, uh, he just lied to you. <laughs> Fear can get us all. When we least expect it, when we don't see it coming, all of a sudden fear hits us and it hits us like a truck and it leads us to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. In some ways, maybe even there, it shows us our true character and that's a scary thing when you're the guy who stands up here on Sunday and he lied to the estate agent, right? Because it leads to that self-reflection of going, who am I really? Why did I do this, right? Fear is a powerful thing. But fearing the right things can make sure that we don't end up like I did. Fearing the right things consistently and constantly in our lives will lead us down the path of wisdom. Right? John in 1 John writes, in the letter of 1 John writes, perfect love expels all fear. And what's he talking about there? <laughs> you know, loving the latest gadget or you know, loving this or that? No, he's talking about loving God and fearing God and being loved by God. God. He tells us that God's love is a perfect and eternal love. But let's be honest, the struggle that we all face is believing Jesus, is believing John, believing that this is actually true, that God cares for us, especially in those moments where we feel desperate, where fear takes over. And we ask that question, do you know what? I didn't say that question when I went to, when I lied to our estate agent. But I believed it in my heart, like, God, do you really care? I felt like I had to take matters in my own hands because really deep down, I think I wasn't entirely sure that God was going to take care of it. I had to take care of it. I had to do my part. Now, in some ways, that was a really good wake-up call for me. Um, <laughs> 
You know, like, and, and I think we can let those moments be that. But we need to be people who, who recognize that Jesus cares for us. Especially when times of actual, real, true difficulty take over. Right? Because we do experience those. You know what? There's the more like, okay, at the end of the day, is it really that big of a deal? Right? Like buying a house or getting the latest technology. But then there are those moments, though, where there's a real fear that I could lose my own life or I could lose somebody I love. or I, like, you know, There are real, genuine fears that are way more intense than what I was just talking about. C.S. Lewis, in his fantastic book, The Grief Observer, and I say that, it's fantastic. Because he's so honest. In fact, he actually originally published it under a pseudonym because he was scared of what people would think. <laughs> and he says, in a grief observed, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say, you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Would you then first discover how much you really trusted it? And I think that's where the disciples are, right? They've trusted Jesus up to this point. Jesus has been doing all kinds of things. And here these men who are seasoned fishermen are out on the, lake of, uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, just for reference, is 212 meters below sea level, all right? So it's not an enormous lake. It's a big lake, but it's not an enormous lake. But the problem with the lake is that it sits 212 meters below sea level, and there's mountains. And so what happens is when the wind kicks up, it comes down the mountains into the, into the sea, and immediately storms can pick up, like crazy storms. So I was reading a story about a guy who had been to Israel. I've never been. Um, but he said, like, around the car parks around the Sea of Galilee, there's signs that say, hey, be careful about leaving your car here <laughs> because it might be underwater. Like, it can just happen in a flash. So these men who are seasoned fishermen, they're out on, at sea when a, when a storm comes up. And they utter this question that, as I said, I think is at the very heart even almost of what it means to be human. It's that question does God care? When I'm going through troubles, when I'm going through trials, when I'm going through difficulties, when I'm paralyzed by fear, does God care? And again, I think if we're all honest, we've been there. We've probably all at some point in our lives asked that question. And it's silly, to, I think, to pretend that we haven't. We've all asked that question at some point in our lives because, again, it is one of the deepest questions. I think within our souls, within the very core of our being, there is a desire to know God and to be known by God, to love God and to be loved by God, to, to know that there is something bigger than myself and that thing cares about me, that God cares about me, that he loves me. I think deep down, that is our, our, our longing. We long for, for peace. We long to know that we are loved and cared for. And so the disciples utter that question. Don't you even care? Don't you even care? And you know what's interesting? This was something that was pointed out to me. 
is that these are the first words that in the Gospel of Mark, these are the first recorded words that the disciples say to Jesus. Don't you care? And I think, like I said, we can relate to that because there will be storms. There are storms. There have been storms in our life. And often, just like for the disciples, they come up quickly. Most of these storms do not gradually grow on the surface and then find their, you know, slowly pass over. They come immediately and they hit us like a train. One moment, all is well. And the next moment, our lives are turned upside down. And it may feel more like hell. <laughs> Miserable. But here's the thing of encouragement in all of this. Because it's really easy to like, pick on the disciples and their lack of faith. And Jesus is going to bring it up, their lack of faith. But here's one of the things that I, I did take heart as I was reading the passage is this. Their faith may have been weak. And it was. And Jesus is going to point that out. That your faith is weak. But they still turn to Jesus desperate for help. When they need help, when everything is, hits rock bottom and they're terrified they're going to die, they turn to Jesus. And so one commentator, David Garland, talking about this section from 435 to chapter 6, verse 6. Okay, so just see, like, realize that that's kind of one big chunk of like, similar things. So we've got miracles going on. Right? Jesus is going to calm the storms here. He's going to heal a demon-possessed man. He's going to heal a girl who has died. Uh, he's going to raise a girl who's died from the dead. He's going to heal a woman who's been bleeding. Like, right? All of that's going to happen over the next few chapters. And it's just bang, 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 bang. So what, Jesus, or sorry, what David Garland says here about Jesus is that the, those most open to receiving Jesus' power in their lives are those who recognize their own desperate need of it. And that's what I think we see over and over. It's not these people of incredible, immense faith. We see people who all of a sudden come to realize how desperately they need Jesus. And guys, I think that's true for us too. I hope we're growing deeper and deeper in our faith. But it starts by recognizing, I need Jesus. <laughs> like, that's the beginning. That's where it starts. It starts by saying, I need Jesus to help. Because those who are, who are not open to Jesus' power in their lives are no less desperate. It's just when we're in those places, we've convinced ourselves we don't need it. And let's just, like, let's just sit with that for a minute. Right? We've probably all been there, where we convinced ourselves we don't actually need Jesus' help. Right? Instead of, instead of reaching out to Jesus for help, we end up really going down a road of self-medicating. And it doesn't go well. For some people, that self-medication looks like alcohol or drugs. For some people, that, that self-medication looks like a whole series of self-help books. Right? And in fact, the self-help industry in Ireland is one of the largest uh, book-selling industries in Ireland, there we go, yeah, <laughs> right? It, it, it accounts for an enormous percentage of the books that are sold. Yet, Ireland, unfortunately, has some of the highest rates of depression in all of Europe, right? It's that saying, I need something. I'm desperate for help. I reach out for these books. They don't help. 
I reach out to alcohol. We know that doesn't help. We know that's a destructive path, right? Drugs, we know that's a destructive path. Or even maybe uh, more insidious, I have a, an ominous enough word, maybe more like secretly kind of sneaking in, what ends up happening is that we turn to consuming. We turn to consuming. Tom Inglis is a sociologist at UCD, and, and I thought it was interesting. I, I'm paraphrasing him here, but uh, in his book, Global Ireland, he says, Marx was wrong. The real opium of the masses is not religion. And, and again, we know Marx was specifically targeting Christianity there as well. But he says, the real opium of the masses is not religion, but consuming. And let me just, I, again, I pick on this, and I know I pick on it often, but because I think it lies underneath kind of our, our typical like things that we notice, right? Because it's just so much a part of our culture. When we watch ads or whatever, you know, when I, when I am sad, I eat. I get out ice cream. Or when I am sad, I shop. And I know I broke this down once, the idea of like retail therapy, right? And, and so it's like, where, where do I find salvation? It's in shopping, right? That's where my therapy is. That's where I'll find. And right, all of those things can provide a temporary moment, a temporary reprieve from the pains of this earth, right? When I'm going through a difficult time or a tough time, I can go and have a nice meal and it just, it all goes away for a moment. All right? I can go and find a good bargain at a shop and it all goes away. Or I can go treat myself to that, to that you know, um, I don't want to, yeah, I don't know, what would it be for me? I'm trying to make, you know, use an example for me. Uh, I can treat myself to that new guitar. There we go. I was going to say handbag, you know, but I'm like, I'd be picking on, I, I'm not tempted by a handbag. You know, I'm like, I need to at least be honest about myself here, you know, where it's like, oh, I could go buy that, that new guitar. And for a moment, you know, even for maybe a month or two where I'm playing it all the time, it feels great. But you know what? It gets old. Need something else, right? And so I think even there, what, what, what David Garland is saying here is so important that those who are not open to the power of Jesus to change our lives, to meet us in our brokenness are no less desperate. They've just convinced themselves that they don't need it. And I think for you and I, it can be the same. We wrap ourselves up in our work so that I don't have to think about the things going on in my life or gardening or, you know, you name it, you know the thing. <laughs> you know the things that for you are those places where you can be tempted to just kind of push everything away. And instead of giving it to Jesus, you just kind of push it aside and try not to think about it. Now, again, I'm not saying gardening, you know, can't be a good, a good thing. Okay, even, even when things are tough, you know, to get into gardening. Okay, I, I want to add this kind of nuance just to say, I'm not completely saying that those things are, are all wrong, you know, like things like gardening. Again, we're going to stick with that example. Um, do you know, that's fine. But if it's being used as a tool to basically just, I don't need Jesus, I'm going to substitute this instead, that's where you run into the problem. Okay, that's where you run into the problem. Now, to keep moving. <laughs> the disciples ask the question, do you even care? And then what do we find Jesus doing? They wake up Jesus and they ask him, do you even care? Which by the way, sorry, just a few like textual notes here. Like Mark gives us some really interesting details 
Uh, and I just kind of want to point those out. I, as I'm like looking at the text, I'm like, sorry, I just have to, okay? Um, <laughs> like, okay, so many people think Mark is written like a biography, right? It's like from eyewitness accounts. Mark is the only one who mentions Jesus is laying on a pillow. Is there some deep theological significance to that? No, it's just that Jesus was laying on a pillow. Mark adds that detail, right? We get that detail. We also find that there were a bunch of other boats. Does it factor into the story at all? Nope. Interesting detail, though. <laughs> you know, we kind, of, we kind of have this picture. It's just Jesus and the 12 disciples all on one boat. Everything's going crazy. It's like, no, there's a whole bunch of other people, like, out on boats going like, ah! <laughs> like, you know, like, we're going to die. Like, okay, it's not just the disciples. There's a whole bunch of them. And, and Jesus, this is the same. This follows the story. You know, we, we've said before, that sometimes the Gospels aren't written exactly chronologically, right? But this passage seems to indicate that it really does come after Jesus speaking all of these parables about the kingdom of God. Because he's still in the boat, <laughs> and then they go off. All right? So there you go. Side note over. A few, few interesting textual bits. All right? So we find that the, the storm had come up. High waves are breaking into the boat, and the boat began to fill with water. Jesus is sleeping at the back of the boat. Why is he sleeping? A lot of people conjecture. I mean, like, he's been teaching tons and tons. He's probably exhausted. We see the humanity of Jesus. He's asleep in the boat. <laughs> he's tired. He's not, like, you know, laying there awake with, like, one eye half open, just hoping they'll call out to him. You know, like, he's asleep because he's a person, and he's tired, <laughs> and he's sleeping. But he's also a person that has full trust full and complete trust. And so even in a storm, he can sleep. It doesn't bother him. He knows they're not going to die. <laughs> he knows things are okay. He, can, he knows what we don't know, what the disciples don't know. He has the faith that they don't have. And so Jesus was sleeping. And they cry out to him, teacher, don't you care? And when Jesus woke up, they just picture him like kind of waking up, yawning, standing up. And he just said, he, it says he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. That's it. He stands up. He says, silence, or hush. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Knock it off. And the sea's calm. The sea's calm. And one of the things I think is interesting is that it talks about a fierce storm, right? He uses the phrase, a fierce storm. After Jesus speaks those words, what we find is the exact same word for fierce showing up in the, in the Greek that says there was a fierce calm. Now, your, path, your, your Bible probably does not say a fierce calm, but it's the same word. And it can be translated great as well, it can be translated great, or it can be translated, um, where's my notes here? Yeah, or heavy. So it can be translated great, heavy, fierce. All of those are correct, good translations. But understand what happens here. The fierce storm gives way to a fierce calm. And I think that's a good way to put it, rather than even like the great storm gives path to a great calm. Because I think there's an intensity here in this calm. Right? It wasn't like Jesus said, hey, don't worry about it. The storm will pass. It'll be over soon. Like, just chill out, guys. Or it wasn't like he said, like, 
hush, be still, and all of a sudden the wind stopped, but there was still, you know, all the kind of the waves left over from the storm and everything like that. No. Calm. There is a fierce calm as everyone tries to reckon with what's just happened. And Jesus looks at them and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus has been teaching, as I said, the kingdom over and over and demonstrating his power and his authority, yet the disciples don't get it. They don't have a strong faith. They don't have a strong understanding. They don't understand fully who Jesus is, I think. And maybe the times when you fail, like, let this comfort you <laughs> in a way. Like, these are the, you know, these are the guys that, like, we, we put saint in front of their name, right? I mean, these are the guys who, like, you know, often they get elevated as, like, the people, right? They're the guys who go out on the day of Pentecost and preach, and 3,000 people come to know. They go all over the world, and they carry the gospel. And yet in this moment, in this moment, they don't understand their faith so far, up to this point, has not really been tested. I mean, that's the thing, right? Their faith hasn't really been tested, right? Jesus is like a celebrity. They're going around, like crowds are crowding in. Like everybody wants to get their hands on Jesus. Everyone's like, yeah, Jesus is the best. So like they're living it high. They're like, yeah, we're, in. we're his disciples. This is pretty cool, right? Now their faith is tested. And we see, we see who they really are in that moment. And let's just kind of give it away for a moment and just say, this is the first of many tests they're going to face. And it's not the only one that they're going to fail. But what we find in the story is that the longer that they are with Jesus, the more that they know Jesus, the more they become like Jesus. And the more they become like Jesus, the less they fail. <laughs> that's, that's the big church word for sanctification right there. Becoming like Jesus Right? Knowing Jesus, becoming like him, loving him more, sinning less. And they learn to trust God. And so if this is where you are, where you find yourself asking, do you care? There's no shame in that. Understand, there's no shame in that. We've all been there. Even the disciples were there. We all face wrongs and we all face trials. And it's in these times where our faith is weak we must remember, and this is what I told you, we're going we're gonna to hone in on this morning, who Jesus is and where Jesus is. Because these are important. Like I said, this fierce storm gave way to a fierce calm. Because what we find is this idea that do you even care <laughs> moves to who is this man? Right? And again, that's one of the great questions of the ages, isn't it? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? If he's capable of that, who is Jesus? My goodness, you know, like they witness this and they go from Jesus doesn't care to, oh boy, <laughs> who is this guy? I kind of want to back off slowly out of the boat, but, you know, like we're not at the story where Peter walks in the water yet. So, you know, like that's, but, um, right? They're terrified even, but it's a different kind of terrified because fearing the right thing is an important part of maturing in your faith. Learning to fear the right thing is the key to unlocking walking with Jesus. 
In Proverbs 9, verse 10, there's the famous passage that says, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. You want to be a person who lives well in the world? And I think that's what a wise person does. Wisdom gives someone the ability to live well in the world. If you want to live well in the world, if you want to live as a person who is wise, if you want to know Christ, it starts with fear. It starts with that moment of seeing Jesus face to face for who he really is. The guy who says, hush, be still, and and everything comes. And that should terrify us like it terrified the disciples. Right? I think about all the way to the book of Revelation, right? The beginning of the book of Revelation, when John, who was in the boat here, when John meets Jesus after he had ascended into heaven, when John meets Jesus, he sees him and he falls down on his face as if dead. When Daniel sees God in the book of Daniel, woe is me. Sorry, that's Isaiah. Woe is me, man of unclean lips. But when Daniel sees the throne too, he goes, well, I don't belong here, (laughs) right? Like, that is the experience that people have, whether it's Isaiah, whether it's Daniel, whether it's John, whether it's, you know, whether it's disciples in the boat with Jesus. They experience Jesus for who he really is, and they go, I don't belong here. (laughs) There's something going on here. This is scary. This is not normal. This is not the way things are. What is happening, right? It's that fear of the Lord that leads then It becomes the foundation of wisdom because it is there where we say, then God says to us, I love you. Like he says to John, stand up. It's me, Jesus. And he allows John then to stand up after having feared and experienced truly the fear of the Lord. It is there then that John is able to then stand and be with God. Confident in his love. Perfect fear casts out, or perfect love casts out fear. But it's that experiencing then the love of God. The fear of God leads us to the love of God. And we experience then the wisdom of God as we come to live in relationship with him, knowing that the creator of the universe cares for us. Jesus then, so, so yeah, they ask this question, who is this man? And they ask it in fear. But what we see then about Jesus is that he acts in divine power and authority. What he does here, in many ways, <laughs> parallels a lot of stuff that we read in the Psalms. And I'm not going to read a bunch of Psalms for you, but I will read two ch- sections of Psalms that I think relate to this passage. The first one is out of Psalm chapter 65. Verse 7. All right? And maybe this sounds like this is, uh, this is the psalmist writing about Yahweh, writing about God. And he says this, You quieted the raging oceans with their pounding waves and silenced the shouting of the nations. In Psalm 93, verses 3 to 4, it says, The floods have risen up, O Lord, 
The floods have roared like thunder. The floods have lifted their pounding waves. But mightier than the violent raging of the seas, mightier than the breakers of the shore, the Lord above is mightier than these. And here when literal seas are pounding, Jesus gets up off the pillow and says, hush, be still. Jesus acts in divine power and authority. I would argue he acts even as God himself is described. And so I think this story then reminds us of the absolute sovereignty of God. He is in control, even in those moments where it doesn't feel like it, even in those moments where it doesn't seem like it, when all of life seems like it's falling apart, he is there. We find God's absolute sovereignty demonstrated to us in Jesus. There was an ancient church author by the name of Prudentius. So there's a name for anybody, you know, maybe, maybe one of our kids, we could think about that, Prudentius. Anyway, Prudentius authored a poem or a song, actually it was a hymn, called The Author of the Deep. Now he combines this story with Jesus walking on the water, but I just kind of wanted to, to read to you from this poem. He says, His power and miracles proclaim Him God. I see the wild winds suddenly grow calm when Christ commands. I see the storm-tossed sea grow smooth with tranquil surface bright at Christ's behest. I see the waves grow firm as the raging flood sustains His treading feet. He walks dry-shod upon the flowing tide and bears upon the flood with footsteps sure. He chides the winds and bids the tempest cease. Who would command the stormy gales? Be still, your strongholds keep, and leave the boundless sea, except the Lord and maker of the winds. Who on the sea could walk, who with firm step upon the flood could walk without sinking tread, and sorry, tread the path with souls upborne and feet unwet, except the author of the deep, the Spirit, poured from the Father's lips that moved across the waves, not yet hemmed in by solid shores. This is who Jesus is. We see it on full display. We see both Jesus' humanity as he sleeps in the boat, exhausted. We see Jesus' full deity as he stands up and says, hush, be still. It is important for us to remember who Jesus is. If we're going to walk in wisdom and we're going to walk in the fear of the Lord and not the fear of things in this world, then it is so important for us to start with remembering who Jesus is. Secondly, it's important that we remember where Jesus is. Learning to trust God is an important part of a maturing faith. The disciples' fear of death in this moment is greater than their confidence in the presence of Jesus. But if they had known who Jesus was, if they had reflected on who Jesus was, they would not have feared because where was Jesus? He was in the boat with them. Jesus was with them. 
only they had realized who was in the boat with them. Jesus was with them. But Jesus isn't just with them. Jesus is with us. And I think sometimes, too, if only we realized (laughs) that through the storms of this life, Jesus is with us. We would have the tools to survive and to weather the storm. We realized that Jesus is with us. Because you know what? One thing I will say, this passage is not, not, we can't take this passage as a promise that the moment we cry out to Jesus, the storm will still. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage, I think, really, is speaking to who God is, who Jesus is. I think that's, that's a really strong point. It's answering that question, who Jesus is, and we see him work in his power. And I think there's some application we can take of that from that. But one of them is not that when we go through the trials and the difficulties in this world, the moment we pray, all of a sudden, all of our storms will go away. All of us know that is not the lived reality. Nor is that the promise here, nor is that the promise anywhere in Scripture. Okay? I just want to make that really clear for a moment. But we can realize that Jesus is in the boat with us. That he's there in the storm with us. And he will bring us safely through. That's, I think, a reality that we see in Scripture. Jesus is with us. And Jesus is also on the throne. And I think this is a really, really important reality. I think in women's Bible study, you guys reflected on Revelation 7 last week, right? Alyssa was, had, had brought that to my attention. And so I'm going to read from Revelation 7. I think it's a really important passage in reminding ourselves who Jesus is, that Jesus is on the throne, that not only is Jesus with us, but Jesus is also on the throne. In Revelation 7, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read verses 9 to 10, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 13 to 17. Uh, I, hey, read the whole thing. I would recommend it. Um, I think it's great, but just for the sake of time, we're just going to read these. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb is on the throne. Sorry, that's my note there. That's not in there. But we see the Lamb on the throne. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, now I've skipped down to verse 13. One of the 24 elders asked me, Who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. Notice their storm did not end immediately. These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Here's the thing. 
they did not immediately have their storms calmed by the one who sits on the throne. In fact, they had to endure an incredible trial because it says what? They were martyrs. <laughs> they were the people who died. <laughs> but God brought them through the storm. Ultimately, God brought them through the storm. And that's the promise I think we see in Scripture. God will bring us through the storms of our life. Now, that storm, may, we may not see the end of it until we meet Jesus. But we will be brought through it. And there will be a day where there is no crying and no tears and no, no, no more wrong. That God will wipe every tear from their eyes. But most of our storms, God will bring us through. And it is those moments, those storms that can be so refining to our faith because it brings out our deepest fears. It brings out our deepest, our, our deepest worries and concerns. It brings out our deepest anxieties. It brings out the things that we really love instead of God, the idols in our lives, if you want to, if you want to say it that way. Trials have a way of refining us in a way that nothing else does. And do tri are trials fun? No. <laughs> They're terrible. But God can use them to bring us to Him. And so I think when we're going through trials and troubles, and even just through the everyday of life, maybe it can be really helpful to us to just have these like short reminders in our head. Who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Not big, long statements or anything like that, but something short that we can just recall. That question to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Maybe we can remember this story. <laughs> Maybe we can remember the cross. Like we remember then the story of God. Who is Jesus? Where is Jesus? He's with me. He's with me. And he's on his throne. We can remember that. God may deliver us from an enemy storm. He might. Do you know what? I mean, again, he might. You might cry out to him, and immediately the storm may come. I'm not going to say that Jesus doesn't do that. I think he does. But more often than not, he'll bring us through the storm. We must learn the lesson of the disciples, to trust God in the storm, to know that he is the one who is with us, and he is the one who has the power over the storm. So as we, as we close here, I just want to again say, I, this probably isn't very comforting, but just to say there are no safe places in life. Tragedy, difficulty, pain will meet us all. It will. But knowing Jesus and living in relationship with him can give us a security and a peace that nothing else can. The ability to move through the storm. To come out the other side in a way that nothing else can. You know, we, we read a story earlier where Jesus talks about <laughs> where the religious leaders accuse Jesus of basically having the power of Satan. And Jesus says to them, that makes no sense. 
why would Satan destroy Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would Satan undo all the things that Satan is doing? That makes no sense. And he tells a short parable where he talks about a strong man entering the house. And that it takes, or sorry, he talks about a strong man who has a house. And that if somebody wants to take that house, they better be a stronger man. And Jesus is the stronger man. And that for us, as we come to the pains and the difficulties of the world, we realize we live in a broken world where there is a strong man at work. But we live in the reality knowing that there is a stronger man who will pillage that house and set the world right. All the things and the evils that are wrong in this world will be set right. The storms will be no more. And so I just want to finish by reading Romans chapter 8, 35 to 38. And then Alyssa's going to come up and uh, we're going to sing a song. And after the song, then we'll do communion. So we're doing things a little bit differently this week. In Romans 8, 35 to 38, Paul says this, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And so Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No. Power in the sky above. No power in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we see When we are faithless, God remains faithful. When we fail, God forgives. The disciples ask the question, don't you even care? Did I? Man, I'm like way off on my slides. We'll get there. The disciples ask, why do I even do slides? I don't, like, I can't ever keep track of them. Anyway, the disciples ask, don't you even care? When we come to the end of the story, even more than this story, we see that Jesus cares. We find the answer most fully as Jesus goes to the cross. And here in a few minutes, we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate that Jesus went to the cross for you and me and has demonstrated most fully his love for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for...